Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and, and see what you would want us to see from this. We thank you and ask your spirit to guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles chapter 20 as we continue the story of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat has been doing pretty good. Uh, he was told that there was going to be consequences to his agreeing to go out with uh, Ahab and that's about where it was left. But he said, there's good in you, so I'm not going to bring judgment. So, Second Chronicles 20, verse 1. It came to pass after this that the cho children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Amorites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There comes a great multitude against you from beyond the sea on the side of Syria. And behold, they be in Hezekiah, Hezazan Tamar, which is, in, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord, even out of all cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. So we're going to look at this. And it came to pass that the children of Moab, Ammon, and others beside the Ammonites. So we're going to look at this real quick. First off, we had the Moabites. Now, if you don't know the history of the Moabites, the Moabites uh, are descendant from Lot, from his eldest daughter, when, when she seduced her dad into, when they were in the mountains, the Moabites came from that relationship. And the Ammonites are the descendants of Lot from his youngest daughter, or younger daughter than the elder oh, daughter. The yeah, uh, because remember when they came out of, Lot, the two daughters and the wife were taken with him. The wife looked back, became a pillar of salt. And Lot decided he was not leaving the mountains. So the daughters decided, well, we're never going to find guys up here to get married to up here in the mountain because he's not leaving the mountain. And they seduced their dad. And they had these two boys that became individuals. When the Israelites came into the promised land, God said you are not to destroy the Ammonites or the Moabites because they are family. And they were not allowed to destroy them. And then it says that there were others besides them. And if you look at chapter uh, verse 10, it tells us that these were from Mount Seir or Edom. Now, the Edomites <coughs> are also descendants of Israel indirectly because they are the descendants of Esau and God did not allow them to destroy the Edomites at least not originally so we have these three families that are descendants of Israel that have been giving trouble to Israel pretty much since their entire existence uh, the Moabites in Numbers 22 are the ones that went out and they tried to hire Balaam to curse Israel so that's the history they have of, the, of them. The Ammonites in Deuteronomy 2 would not let Israel pass through their land, even though they said, we'll pay you for uh, passage, we'll pay you for any water we drink, we'll pay you for any food, we just want to stay on the, on the highways. And they said, nope, you can't go around them. So they had to go around Ammon, which was a long way to get around them. Moab wouldn't let them come through, and they had to go around Moab. So they had a lot of things going on through all of this. And for the Edomites, uh, they did not allow them to pass. And that's also in Numbers 20. So there's all of these things going on where 
these three nations did not help Israel. And yet Israel was not able to, by God's command, attack them because they were family. And even though they're bad people, they weren't as bad as the Canaanites. So God wasn't ready to take them out at that point in time. And we're going to see the reward was that the three of them, the three nations get together and they decide they're going to try to take out Israel. And so all of this is happening. And it says, and some come, came to told, and told Jehoshaphat saying, there comes a great multitude against you from beyond the sea on, the, on this side of Syria. Now, normally when you see beyond the sea, they're referring to the Mediterranean in this case because Ammon, Edom, and everything are on the other side of the Dead Sea. <laughs> the sea they're referring to is the Dead Sea, not the Mediterranean. Uh, and it says, they're coming to you from beyond the sea on this side of Syria, so the north side of the Dead Sea is where they were coming in from. And he says, they have also been in Hezeron, which is in, in Gedi. So this is a city or an area that is on the west side of the Dead Sea, about third to halfway down from the north, or about two-thirds to half, half to two-thirds from the south side of the Dead Sea. And so here's, here they're coming around the Dead Sea to come up and attack. So this is a pretty big deal. It says a great multitude. And we don't know how many people are in this great multitude. Other than when we get to the end of the story, we're going to find that it takes them three days to get the spoil off of all the dead people. So we're talking a large, large army. How large, we don't know. Large enough to... to bother Jehoshaphat who has a, a large army of himself. He's been winning victories everywhere he goes and all of a sudden he's afraid of this large army that seems to outnumber him and as he's going in. So they're coming up along the west side of the Dead Sea to come up to Israel with a large army that doesn't, defi that doesn't define what it is. And it says Jehoshaphat feared and I love his answer to this. He set himself to seek or inquire of God. At the very least, he knew where to go for help. And he's looking at whatever, whatever he saw was like, it was enough to fear. Remember, this is a man that went to join Ahab to attack the, one of the greatest nations on that side because Assyria, Assyria was what they attacked and, and got defeated by, but he was willing to attack Assyria and this large group of people is making him afraid where he wasn't afraid to go before. And he remember when he went with Ahab, the prophet had said, Ahab, you're going to die. And, and Jehoshaphat still went with him. And so here he is going and saying, I need to seek God. I need to seek God and find out what God wants to do. Now we remember he's also been told that there's consequences for him having gone with Ahab. So on the second side, he's probably looking at it. He goes, is this the consequence? I'm now going to lose my kingdom? Because he's got a great army coming and he's going, okay, God, what is your plan? What is it that you want to do? And he proclaimed a, fee, a fast throughout all Judah. He told the people, we are going to fast. And, you know, so this is what's going on here. He's, he's saying, we need to seek God 
large army coming against us, and we're going to fast and pray and seek God's face. So his answer was the right answer. He knew what was going to, what he needed to do to find help. And so the question for us is oftentimes when we face situations that look impossible, do we spend time in prayer, fasting, and seeking God, or do we try to do things our own way? And too often, most every one of us try to do it in our own way rather than seeking God. God, I'm going to figure this out. We might even say that much. I'm going to figure this out. And, you know, this is where God comes in with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. And yet, too many times we sit there and try to figure out, how can I, how can I get out of this in my own strength? And what we should be doing is seeking God. Now, sometimes God is going to say, go out and do, do this on your own. Other times he says, sit back and wait and see. And the question is, what do we do? We listen to God. And we're going to watch what Jehoshaphat does and what Jehoshaphat is told to do. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new gate and said, O Lord God our, of our fathers, are you not you God in heaven and rule not you over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in your hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwelt therein and have built you a sanctuary. Therein is for your name saying, if when evil comes upon us as the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in your presence for your name is in this house and cry unto you in our affliction, then you will hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they have rewarded us to come to cast us out of your possession, which you have given us. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All right, so we'll stop there. I, I find this very interesting is Jehoshaphat calls the people and he brings them to the temple. And it says he came out and he, in the house of the Lord before the new court. Now, I kind of wanted to find out what the new court was and nobody knows what it is. Most people speculate that it was the outer court of the temple that maybe Solomon had enlarged and, and modified or he had modified, but nobody knows for sure. But we know that it's one of the courts in the temple and could have been the inner court or the outer court. And I kind of tend to believe that it most likely was the outer court because the inner court was used for worship and the outer court was used for teaching and instructions and gathering. So probably the outer court, but we don't know for sure. Uh, so if you read somebody and he says the inner, I'm not going to argue with them. 
it, it's not, you know, nobody knows from what uh, I was able to determine. But he stands before them, he said, and his prayer was, O God of our fathers, are you not the God in heaven who rules over all the kingdoms of the heathen and in your hand there is power and might so that none is able to withstand you? I find it interesting when you read these prayers in the Bible, how often people remind God of his word and who he is. Huh? Well, I mean, it could be, and I think more often they're trying to remind themselves more than anything else. But there, there is a school of thought that says prayer, pray God's word back to prayer, you know, prayer, praying to God. Yeah, it's not a bad deal. I don't know that I would always want to do it that way. But his prayer, basically, he starts out, you know, hey, you're the God of our fathers. <laughs> God, you might be mad at me, but you're still, you're, the, you're our God. You, you, you're not happy with what I did with Ahab, but you're still, you know, you're still our God. All right? Uh, and reminding him, and he goes, and are you not the God of heaven? Why would he be saying this? Is because these people worshipped idols. And in that day and age, when you went out to battle, you went out and fought in the name of your God, and whichever God was, was stronger than the other God would be victorious, and that's how they looked at it. So God, you know, Jehoshaphat's reminding God, oh God, you're the God of heaven. You are the God. We've got these people coming in. They're going to claim that if they win the battle, that you aren't God that they have defeated you. So he's reminding God, uh, God, this is not just a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. These are the people that, that worship Gamesh and Astoroth and Baal. And he's saying, God, we can't let them win. You know, and basically saying, God, you can't let them win because then their God will win. And this was the way it was. And there's a particular verse in Joshua that I have always thought was very interesting and I can't remember which one it was, but the people said, our God is the God of the plain. Their God defeated the God of the mountains, but our God's the God of the plain, and, and we will be able to be victorious over, over their God. You know, why? Because their God's strong enough to beat the God of the, of the mountain. We beat him a couple of times. Our God, our God will give us victory over them. And that's how they looked at it. We have a God of the plain. We've got a God of our people. We've got a God of this river. We've got... Now, and we think about this in our day and age as monotheists, we don't understand how big a deal it was in their day to even take a trip. Uh, and I had somebody give this ex ex expression. When you left your house, you, you made an offering to the God of your house to protect your house while you were gone. When you got out to the road, you prayed to the traveling God to protect you while you traveled. You got to the woods and you prayed to the gods of the woods to protect, you know, not to come and you know, offered sacrifices to the god of the woods, not to attack you. When you came to the river that you were going to have to ford, you'd offer a god, an offering to the god of the river so that you didn't get swept away by the river. And then when you got to the town, you'd pray to the god of the town so that you'd be protected. And then you started all over again when it was time to go back home. You know, and we kind of laugh at that, but that is the way they thought. Each place had their own God. Each place and everything had its own God, and you had to worship the God, satisfy the God in that area, unless you, somehow your God was stronger than their God. 
and you really didn't take much chance on it, so you made all these little sacrifices to all these gods as you would make a trip or in a battle. You know, our god is going to be stronger because you know, they're strong in the mountain, but they're coming down in here, and our god is going to defeat them because they've got a mountain god and we've got a valley god. And we laugh about that but, you know, because we know that we have the God who's a God above all gods. But here is Jehoshaphat reminding him, God, you're, you are the God. These guys are coming up and I mean, we're encouraging you to give us victory because you are God. And if they defeat us, then you're not going to look like you're, you're, you're God. So they don't believe really in the real God. They believe in their God. <laughs> well, they believe in their gods. They believe in lots of gods and so they have if you if you've ever gotten into greek or, or roman mythologies you know you had this pantheon of gods and zeus is the number one god but everybody was fighting zeus all the time and fighting each other and, and whoever was stronger that day would win the battle and nobody ever defeated zeus because he was stronger than everybody else but you know that's the way the world thought about their gods there's a whole bunch of half god you know you know, these gods are just like human beings and all they do is fight each other. And the one who's not the tiredest that day, you know, uh, will, win the, will win that battle. All these nations that don't have the God have thought that way. And, you know, you've got the Hindus with their hundreds of gods that they worship. You've got uh, all the, you know, the Native American tribes that had multiple had little gods over each other and had a lot of ancestral worship. Uh, you have all these things going on where this is for us as, as monotheists, you know, seeing that we worship the God of heaven and earth and then he, everything belongs to him and he is the mighty ruler and everything he decides is what's going to happen. This is Jehoshaphat's prayer. God, you are the God. And I love this. He goes, and he goes, and you rule... And, and rule not over all the kingdoms of the heathen. So we say, God, you're in charge of all the heathen too. They may not even recognize it, but God, you are in charge of all things. Now, this is an interesting prayer for a Jewish person because usually they don't even think of the Gentiles at all. And God is saying, and here he's saying, God, you rule, you're God of heaven, but you, and we're your people, but you also rule over the heathen. And he's thinking back to what, what he did to Egypt, what he's done to Canaan, what he's done to the Moabites and the, and the Philistines and all these other nations. And it says, when we, it's time to win, you step in. You're, you are the one that rules. He's thinking back to where Solomon says that the heart of the king is turned by, the, by God. He's thinking about all these things that God is in charge and man is subject to God in spite of what it looks like. And in our day, it's kind of when we look at things, it's go, God, if you lost your mind, look at all this craziness that is going on. And God says, I've got a plan. I have a plan. I know what I'm doing. In spite of what it may look like, I have a plan. And here, Jehoshaphat's saying, uh, God, we've got a problem. <laughs> Remember us. Remember us. Now, I don't see repentance in this, in this prayer, but just reminding God, we're your people. Where your people comes in. And it says, And in your hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. So he's going, God, you, if it's your desire, if it's your will, you can, you can deliver us. 
And again, he's thinking about the destruction of Egypt. He's destru- you know, thinking about all the destruction, all the battle that God has given over the years. And we don't know how big this army is, but it's enough to drive him to, his, you know, to, to the people and say, God, I'm worried. We, can't, we in our own strength cannot take them. We need your help. And we don't know how big this army was, but it is big enough to make him a, a king who has been winning battles take note. All right? Uh, and then he continues in verse 7, Are you not our God, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend forever? All right? So here he's continuing his reminding of God. God, you delivered us. You took us out of Egypt. You brought us into Canaan. Oh, and by the way, God, you gave this land to your friend, Abraham. He's going back a long ways on here, but he goes, Abraham's your friend. You promised it to Abraham. And you promised it to him forever. God, I'm just kind of reminding you that this belongs to your friend who's with you right now, but don't forget about him. We're his descendants. This is a pretty bold prayer when you really break it down to it, you know, to, to remind God of all of these things. And, but it's also a very true prayer. You know, and we can also do the same thing when we're praying to God and, and looking for something that is a hopeless situation. We could be saying, God, remember, your son died for my sins. I am one of your children. I, you know, give me victory and forgive, you know, forgive me of whatever it is that's going on and give me victory. Why do we not see God move very often? It's because we don't make bold prayers. We don't make very many bold prayers. Why do we not see the healings that we need to see? It's because normally we won't make the prayer and won't believe that God can do it unless we absolutely have to. And this is very interesting because in America, and I'm not saying anything bad about doctors and hospitals, what is the first thing we think about when we get sick? Got to get to the doctor, got to get some medicine. You know, what are the things that missionaries think when there's no doctor for hundreds of miles and somebody's really sick? First thing they do is pray. And then they try to figure out how can we get this person to the hospital that's 100 miles away or, or not even a hospital, but to a doctor that's hundreds of miles away over roads or conditions that are hard to do. But they prayed first and oftentimes they see the miracle because that's their only option. Here we see Jehoshaphat saying, God, I see no way out of this. There's no way to, for victory unless you deliver us. Quite a prayer. But how many times do we not pray because we try to look at some way out of it in our own, in our own strength? And we need to learn to depend on God more than we do. And no matter how much you depend on God, you can learn to depend on him more. Because I don't know anybody who depends on God completely first. And, you know, and I've said this many times, we even have a statement, I've tried everything else, I might as well pray. Okay? And the attitude, our attitude should be, I've prayed, now I'll try everything that I can do until God tells me to not do it. But our first step should always be seeking God and saying, God, I want to come to you first. Not after I've done everything I can think of doing and then some. 
Because you know, if you're like me, I'm a planner and organizer. I'll try everything, and when that doesn't work, I'll try everything else. And then when that doesn't work, I'll try everything else. And when that doesn't work, I'll try something, try everything else. And then I'm going, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Uh, and you know, we've got to be careful of that. We really do need to come to God first and say, God, what do you want done? How can I make this? What can you do, God? Not what can I make do, but God, what will you do to make this work out? And here he's making this whole statement. He goes, God, you know, remember, you gave us this land. You drove the Canaanites out. You delivered us from Egypt. And you gave us this land. And by the way, it's for Abraham. Okay, basically saying, God, I don't deserve any of this, but this is Abraham's gift. You gave this to Abraham. I don't deserve this, but uh, I'm, I'm begging you for Abraham's sake to remember. And then it says, and they dwelt therein and, have, and, and they dwelt therein and built you a sanctuary therein for your name. All right? So they built the temple, and this is where they're standing in the temple. And it says, saying, if when evil comes upon us as the sword and judgment or the pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in, in your presence, for your name is in this house, and cry out in our affliction, then you will hear and help. This goes back to 1 Kings uh, 8, when Solomon stood in the temple and dedicated it and said, if when we sin and we come to this house, if when we do this and as long Long things where he says, if we do these things, if we do these things, or not, no, excuse me, it wasn't if, it says when. <laughs> Just get that right. Solomon said, when we do this, when we do this, when we do this, if we will stand in this house and confess and call on your name, God will hear us. And God answered and said, yes, I will hear you. So here Jehoshaphat is in there and just reminding God, God, you said, <laughs> you said this. You know, we can see the fear that he's having saying, God, I have no other options but to come to you because this nation, these three nations coming against me are going to crush me without your help. And he's going in and is reminding him, God, you said if we call on your name, you will help. And he says, now behold, the children of Ammon, Moab, and, and Mount Seir, which is Edom, whom you would not let Israel invade, and by, you know, almost, almost accusing God. God, you wouldn't let us destroy them way back when. <laughs> and he says, when we came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us. All right, this is a pretty bold statement. God, you wouldn't let us destroy them. Now look what they're doing. Now this is pretty bold. <laughs> God, uh, by the way, these are these nations. You wouldn't let us destroy them and look what they're doing. Look how they're repaying your mercy. And this is basically what he's coming back down to. God, you, you gave them mercy. You wouldn't let us destroy them. Now look how they are repaying. And this is actually one of the hardest things. When you're nice to somebody, you do something kind, and they reward you by being worse, it's hard to be nice to them anymore. And yet Jesus said the same thing. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those that despitefully use you. And here, you know, Jehoshaphat doesn't have that exhortation from Jesus. He's just saying, God, you wouldn't let us get rid of them back when it would have been easy. 
Now they're really strong and they're now coming at us as a group. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do? This is how they rewarded your mercy. This is how they are rewarding your mercy. Uh, and come to cast us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. All right. Now you have a problem also is from the, the Moabites and the Ammonites and all these people. They always believed that this land belonged to them and that it was stolen from them because Israel had come in and, and conquered the land and that this was stolen land. Does that sound just a little bit familiar? It's still being said about them today. God gave them the land to the children of Israel. And even back then, they understood that, you know, they believed that the land was stolen. And in this case, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and the, um, and the <laughs> Ammonites, <laughs> Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites, they actually have a claim. They are all related to Abraham. So they do believe that this land is as much theirs as it would be to Jacob's children, or even more, because they are closer related to, to uh, Abraham. And through, but Abraham's sons instead of the brothers and, and uncles. So they all believe, and even to this day, which is why there will not be any uh, peace in Israel until the Antichrist comes around, because it's not a just nation against nation. It is literally a family issue. All right? The Muslims believe that the land belongs to them because they trace their roots to Esau, who is a the eldest son of Abraham. And by the laws of inheritance, the oldest son was supposed to inherit the bulk of the inheritance. And God forbid, uh, not Esau, but uh, I said Esau, Hagar, Isaac and uh, Ishmael. So they traced their line to Ishmael, who is the eldest son of Abraham. So for them, this is a really big deal. You know, for their, from their perspective, the land does not belong to Israel. It belongs to Ishmael. Even though God said, Ishmael is the son of your flesh, and I'm not recognizing him, they say he's the eldest son, and by the laws of the land, the laws of the Middle East, he, this land should belong to them. And because of that mentality, there won't be peace, because we're not dealing with just fractions of enemies. We're dealing with... a family issue and family issues are some of the hardest things to deal with all right and these three nations were family that are coming against them and so we have all of this going on in this land and that's been israel's problem from the very beginning everything that comes against them becomes a family issue more than anything else because it's like you know hey you know we're we're descendants of abraham too so this land belongs to us as much as it does to you guys you can't claim it all your own even though God gave it to the sons of Jacob. And he says, the line has been promised to Abraham, then the promise was given to Isaac, then the promise was given to Jacob, and not to Ishmael and Esau and all the other ones that come along in it. God says, this is my line of promise. These are the ones I've given it to. So here we have this big family battle <laughs> coming up. And it says... Verse 10, O Lord, will you not judge them? 
For we have no might against this great company that comes against us, neither know we what to do, but your, our eyes are upon you. And this tells us that he has some great fear. He's looking at this army saying, we can't even come against them. Whatever it was they had, number, number of people, equipment, whatever it was that they had, he's going, I don't see how we can beat this group of people. And it is three nations, which is a pretty big deal. Even if each one nation had as many people as he did, and I'm not sure what there are, he's still outnumbered three to one if that's the case. All right, and that's a big number to be... But his prayer seems to be even worse than this. I think it's even, lo even a larger, larger number that he's being outnumbered by. And a large group, and it has him fearful. And he says, Lord, we do not know what to do. We're, we're beside ourselves. But I love this. Our eyes are on you. It says, we are looking to you. We've declared a fast. We're praying the people are gathered together, and God, we are waiting for you. And so he's knowing what to do. And Isaiah, even though Isaiah hasn't been at this point in time, says, They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strengths. They shall mount up like, on wings like eagles. They shall run and not faint. They shall, they shall run and, not, and they will walk and not grow weary. He doesn't know this, but he at least knows to look to God. And I love this. This is his prayer. Yeah. And we see this in Jehoshaphat, even when he was going with Ahab, the first thing he wanted to know, you know, 400 people are saying, go to battle, go to battle. He says, well, what does God say? Find me, find me a prophet of God. And then he doesn't listen to that prophet. But that prophet never did say, don't go. He just said, Ahab, if you go, you're going to die. He never told Jehoshaphat that he was going to die. He never told Jehoshaphat not to go. I think that I might have kind of had second thoughts about it. If the other king's going to die, I don't know that I would have gone in. But, you know, this, that prophet never did say, don't go. So he technically wasn't disobedient. But uh, here he's going, what are we, we going to do, God? We are looking to you. Verse 13 says, And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Zaharzirel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Zeael, the son of Matahaniah, a Levite of the son of sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, and he said, Hearken you, all Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go you down against them, and behold, they, they come by the cliff of Zis, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before, before the wilderness of Zeru, Zeruel. And you shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourself, stand you still, and see the salvation of the Lord, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will, fight before, will, will be before you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the children of Kohathites and the children of the Kohites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. So here we have Jehoshaphat coming. He has 
repeated God's works. He has presented God with his petition. He said, we can't do anything. We can't make it. And he calls for help, help from God. And I'm not going to read all the names of this guy. The, the Levite stands up. <laughs> now, the God's spirit falls upon him, and he stands up, and he says, hearken, listen, all of you, Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat. This is what God says. Be not afraid, nor be dismayed by reason of this great multitude. Now, that is... One of those things that's easier said than done when you're looking at a great problem and you can't figure out how that problem is going to be solved and you have to rest. What does God ask us to do so often? He wants us to learn to rest and trust him. Sometimes that trust and rest will end up in action. Sometimes it is just stand back and watch God work. But the first thing is to learn to rest. All through the scripture, God is telling his people, don't be afraid, rest. Trust him. And it is not easy to trust God in those hard times. Especially when everything looks like it is arrayed against you in mighty battle. And here he actually has an enemy who's seeking to kill him. And God says, don't be afraid or dismayed. Now, that's a tough, tough thing. But he has been asking, saying, God, our eyes are on you. What have you got to say? And he says, don't be dismayed. Don't be, don't be afraid. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Now, we need to really recognize that all of our battles truly are God's and not ours. Sometimes he may ask us to fight it. Sometimes he may say just to sit back. In the case of Jehoshaphat, he's going to tell him, Stand and watch. When case of David, many times he told David, go into battle. There were a couple of times when God said, stand back and watch. When David would, was moving and watch what God did. In one particular case of David, Saul had him surrounded. He was going to die. And God said, just stand and watch. And the Philistines decided to attack Judah and Saul and his army left David and went to defend Israel and David was delivered. In a time when there was no way he could have been delivered, he was trapped where he was at. And we see this over and over that God delivers. In one of the battles for, jo uh, for Joshua, it said God drove the Hittites out by sending wasps. I don't know how many wasps it would take to drive an entire army out of the battlefield, but God sent enough wasps to drive the entire army out of the battlefield. And Joshua just had to watch. Another time, God made the sun stand still so he could fight for longer to make sure that he really killed the, all the enemies. There's times when God says, go out and do, and there's times when he says, stand and watch. But note that what he's told here to do is not just be idle. God never tells us to be idle. Because what was the game plan here? He says, the battle is God's. He goes, tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they come by the cliff of Zis. Now, the question on this is, where is Zis? Zis is a pass down in Engedi with narrow walls and narrow, narrow paths up, the up a cliff. And so he says, 
He tells them exactly where they're going to go. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. How many times does God tell the enemy where, where people are, what they're going to happen? In the book of Kings, we read about Elijah telling the king everywhere that the enemy was and what they were doing so that they would either be where they needed to be to defeat him or not be where the king thought they were going to be. So much so that the king says, okay, which of you is the spy <laughs> telling Israel what, what's going on? And I don't know how they knew, but they go, no, they, there's a prophet that's telling them what everything that you say their prophet knows. Uh, and so God has a plan. He has a, an organization for it. And here he's telling them exactly where the enemy is going to be. So if you want proof of what's going on, all you've got to do is go where God says they're going to be and find them there. And this is what he's given. And they're given exactly where the enemy is going to be. And it says, you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness in Zurel. And it says, you shall not need to fight in this battle. Okay, now you've got to picture this. He goes, you've got this multitude that they're afraid of. He says, you're going to go to where they're going, and you're not fighting. You are going to see God deliver. How many times do we see God deliver? The children of Israel, the very first big battle in the land of Canaan, Jericho. And God gives them a really interesting game plan to defeat the city. Go march around the city. March around the city and again. Do it for six straight days. Seventh day, okay, we're going to really change the game plan. We're going to let you march around the city seven times. And then you're going to shout and the walls are going to fall. Now, can you imagine being the soldier in that battle? Can you imagine the guys on the wall looking down and going, what is this crazy army doing? They're just marching around the city. Watch them doing this for six days, and then the seventh day, they keep marching around the city, marching around the city, marching around the city, and you're going, I can anticipate that every, almost every citizen in Jericho was probably on the wall, you know, toward the end of the day going, what are these crazy people doing? And then God brought the wall down. I don't think they had to fight very many people. I believe most of them were up on that wall looking down on them when it fell. That's my belief, I, you know, because I know that that would be exactly what would happen. You know, one time around, okay, they're doing what they've always done. Two, three, four, five, six. Crowd is going to gather going, what in the world are these people doing? And then the walls fell, and they were able to conquer everything. God did most of the killing in Jericho by dropping the walls with them on it. You know, and you see it over and over how God delivers his people. And here God's saying, I have a plan to deliver. You are not going to fight. Jehoshaphat, you're worried, you're fearful. You are not going to fight, but you are going to go stand. You are going to, to make that stand. And he says, set yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. He goes, Jehoshaphat, you're going to go out to, and get in battle. You're going to line up your men for battle, but you're not going to fight. You are just going to stand there and watch what God does. Isn't that the hardest thing sometimes, to stand back and watch God work? 
God, I've got to figure out how to make this work. I just, I, you know, and God is saying, just stand still. Be still and know that I am God. He says that several times in the scriptures. And here he's telling Jehoshaphat, you're going to line up. You're going to stand. And I am going to do something that is going to amaze you. It's going to amaze the people. And you are going to be elevated in the sight. And people are going to see that God is God. And I love this so many times when we can learn to just stand still and watch God work. My, my greatest things that I love is when God finally gets it through my head just to stand still and watch him do what he wants to be done. And I'm not very good at it. You know, it's one of the problems of being a type A managerial type person is you want to fix things, and that's me, try to fix things and make it happen. It's hard to stand still and watch God. And yet, I've learned over the years it's much better to stand and watch God, even though I'm still not very good at it. I've learned that I should be better at it. Jehoshaphat has been told, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed, for tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now, it would be much easier to be standing still when the prophet is telling you to stand still. And you have a very clear fact that I'm supposed to stand still because one of the hardest things I know, when do I get out and I move? When do I stand back and stand still? That is hard. That is learning to listen to the voice of God. And how do you know the voice of God? You learn to listen. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. The more time we spend with him, the more time we spend in his word, the more time we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit, the easier it gets to hear the word of God. The less time I spend in the word, the more I'm worrying about everything, the less time I do this, the harder it is to hear God's word. So when we start facing problems, the very first thing we should do is exactly what Jehoshaphat does. Call upon God. Maybe even fast. You know, fasting is something that we don't do very much in our day and age. And we probably should do more fasting. And when we fast, we, sub we substitute our, our desire to eat and seek God. And I've had some fasts and everything. I haven't fasted as much as I should probably, but I've had some. And I've done one, one really long fast in my life. And, you know, seeking God. Seeking what it is. And here he's telling people, we're going to seek God. We're going to come before him and we're going to fast. We're going to seek God and find out what God wants. And why should we fast? Because well, if we fast our food, that's what our bellies are, are very ruling over us. It's pretty hard to give up, give up our eating for some of us. Now, if you have no problem giving up eating, then fast something else. For our world, some people may have to fast television and give up watching television or watching the news or whatever it might be. Give up something that is extremely important to you and say, God, instead of doing what I am doing, I am going to spend time seeking your face and say, I am going to come and do this. He says you, you don't have to fight the battle, but you still have to show up for it. Still had to show up. You still had to be there. But he says, you're just going to stand and watch me do this deliverance. And that happens frequently. 
What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to do? They had to stand and say, we're going to stand with God and we're going to watch him deliver. Daniel in the lion's den, I'm going to stand and be faithful to God and God will be the one that does the work. Uh, you know, and he's saying, line up, stand, be ready for the battle, you know, but you're not going to have to fight. And oftentimes when we are standing ready, God does the delivery. And I've seen that over and over in my lifetime. I'm ready. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to do whatever it is. that. I, and then I watch God step in and say, you're not having to fight this battle. I'm doing it. And you watch God do things and it's like, wow. <laughs> what, what are you doing, God? I don't. And the scary thing to me is that God is actually worse to the enemies than, than I would be in many cases. I've seen him literally almost destroy somebody or something that is an enemy to me at that time because I just wanted to win you know, and leave them alone and God says no I'm going to take them out and oftentimes when God steps in he takes them out and these, these nations are going to be devastated from this battle and I've seen this over and over where God steps in and goes wow God did it really take that much knowing that it had to otherwise he wouldn't have done it and I've seen this happen over and over again where God steps in to defend somebody and he'll go, wow, that person, man, God, that, that person's life has been really either hurt, destroyed, dead, or totally devastated and still living. And you're going, wow, God, I really didn't, I didn't want that much to happen to, you, to them. I just wanted them to leave me alone. I wanted them to leave somebody else alone. And you really took out just about everything. And that's how God moves sometimes in his will. And so they're told, and as you pointed out, that was my next point, is that they were told to stand. <laughs> they were told to, to appear. They were told to be ready. They were, and it says, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So they worshiped God. Uh, I find it so interesting. They were prepared, to, they were told to prepare, and then when God gave them this, they worshiped. And I think about this, you know, do we truly worship God enough? You know, and I think about this, you know, most people think of the time to worship God is when they come to church and they're singing and praying going on. But you know, we should be worshiping God every day. And it doesn't just, it isn't just in singing. It isn't just in reading the word, but it is literally bowing our heart and saying, God, you are wonderful, you are glorious, you are you know, you know, wonderful. I like to sing. I do like to sing, and I sing frequently when I'm in the car, when I'm crossing the, crossing the prison ground. Sometimes in my office, I'll softly, I'll softly sing. Anything to bring me into the presence of God, and this is what worship is all about. Whatever it takes to bring you into the presence of God should be what you're doing. You know, for some people it might be reading the word. For some people it will be singing. For some people it might be praying. But do we enter into his presence? There have been times when I've entered into the worship of God through prayer. And I just get overwhelmed in prayer. And there's times when I will just sometimes just weep because God is so present in the prayers and it's not me even talking anymore. It's just God and me together. 
and I'm being overwhelmed. Do we spend enough time in prayer? Do we spend enough time in worship? And we need to be able to look and say, what is worship? And tomorrow night we'll talk a lot about worship because that is, when I get to Jeremiah, that is part of what my talking is going to be on. What is true worship? And what does it mean to worship? And are we spending enough time in worship? I don't spend enough time in worship, and I try to spend time in worship, but I don't spend enough in it. Here, Jehoshaphat's answer is to worship God and just praise God. God has answered his prayer. And he is, like, overwhelmed. And he's even been told, you're not going to have to fight this battle. And his attitude is, God, I'm just bowing my heart before you. He is totally trusting that this message from this, pro- this Levite is a true message. And he says, all right, we're going to go stand in battle and we're not going to have to fight? God, thank you. God, how wonderful can this be? And this isn't the first time that God is going to tell a king that he isn't going to have to fight a battle. And God is going to defeat an enemy. And well, it's the first time here, but it's not the only time. Let's say it's not the first time. It's not the only time that they're going to be stand still and watch God deliver you. And then it says, The Levites and the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korites stood and up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice. Most likely because the Kohites and everything were the singers, they broke out in songs of worship for God because that was their job in the temple, was to pray, was to, to sing praises. So they got together, and God is going to deliver them, God is going to help them, and they break out in song. Yeah. And this really is something, because we think about this, songs touch us in a different way than anything else. You know, how many musicians and stuff have built up these love songs? Usually from having an experience of love. And the way that they express that is through their music. Uh, victory, the songs of victory. When God is given victory, when, any, when you have victory, songs come. When you want to encouragement. How many songs have come during times of war to encourage the, the army to fight? Uh, songs like, mine eyes have seen the glory of the, of the coming of the Lord. You know, the, uh, the battle hymn of the Republic was an encouragement to fight. We have songs from World War II, you know, uh, that encouraged people to fight. And so songs are encouragement to us. And songs are powerful. Songs have a powerful place over us. Even when we can't sing, songs still have a powerful place in our life. And the Levites break out in song. God is going to give us victory. And what psalms they sang doesn't tell us. They were just, we're going to sing some songs. We're going to glorify God because God has answered the prayer. We are going to be victorious and God is going to be the deliverer. And, you know, I can almost picture what this is going to be like. They're going to go stand on the hill. All right, God, how are you going to win this battle? And unfortunately, we're going to leave it here. We're not going to see how God wins the battle until next week unless you read ahead. (laughs) You read ahead, you'll see how God wins the battle. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Thank you for the fact that you are our God, that you will deliver us. You are our strength. 
And when the time comes that you will win battles, then we do not have to fight. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.